Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. On Commons People this week, it's spend now, tax later in the budget. But I also wanted to be honest with people, honest with the country about the challenges that coronavirus has caused us. Is Rishi Sunak changing the Tory party? The rate of corporation tax paid on company profits will increase to 25%. And how on earth does Labour respond? One day these restrictions will end. One day we'll all be able to take our masks off, and so will the Chancellor. And then you'll see who he really is. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hi, Paul. And we've got the Shadow Treasury Minister, Pat McFadden. Hi, good to be here. Hi, Pat. Nice to see you. Well, after a mountain of briefings and an onslaught of self-promotion, Rishi Sunak delivered his budget this week. It's been described as a spend now, tax later budget to help the country through the pandemic, boost the economic recovery afterwards, but then get to work on reducing the huge deficit left by eye-wateringly expensive COVID support measures. Furlough was extended, business grants handed out and tax breaks offered for investment in the next two years. But from 2023, the tax burden will be hiked to the highest level since the 1960s through the freezing of income tax thresholds and a big increase in corporation tax for the largest firms. Let's hear the Chancellor. But I also wanted to be honest with people, honest with the country about the challenges that coronavirus has caused us, particularly in our public finances. Uh, And I don't think it would be right or straight to ignore those, let them be someone else's problem to fix, which is why we set out a plan to address that. Um, Paul, uh, in that clip we just heard, Rishi Sunak said he was being honest about the measures needed to fix the public finances. But is he telling the whole story in this budget? Well, whenever a politician says they're being honest, I have to say it's a bit like when they say I'm being clear. You think, well, actually, you're not being clear, otherwise you wouldn't need to say it, would you? So I I think I know what he was trying to do. He's trying to say, look, I will level with you. We're not going to hide anything. Every chance of a stealth tax is I'm different. Right. We get that. But, you know, was he honest? Well, he wasn't honest really about some of the public spending uh, problems that he's got facing and that the IFS and the Resolution Foundation have picked up already. You know, the problems facing councils and Justice Department, for example, you know, we they look like they're going to get squeezed um, because every every other department's getting decent spending so there's that he wasn't honest about that he, he rattled through the fiscal drag stuff really quickly I mean he talked about you know he was he was trying to be honest about the fact that be a, bit, a bit of pain for people but then he said but no one's gonna um, see any change in their take-home pace and you think well that really is pounding your pocket stuff as if inflation doesn't matter and as a chancellor he knows inflation matters so that wasn't totally honest you should just level people say you're, you're going to get hit by this I'm raising some money I'm bringing a million more people into the tax bracket um, I've had to do it you know that would be a bit more honest the other things as I say rattle through things like inheritance tax pensions allowance VAT registration all that stuff the other stuff is freezing all those thresholds 
which raises him quite a bit of dosh. Um, so again, that wasn't totally straight. But I think one of the other things is that um, big super deduction. He said that's the biggest ever business tax cut in British history or something like that. Um, but, you know, again, if you're honest, you say, well, actually, because you're doing it for only two years, many companies are just going to bring forward investments they were going to do anyway, won't they? Uh, and they'll just benefit. So will that increase investment, really? The same for free ports, aren't you just relocating rather than creating jobs? So, you know, when it comes to honesty, I think there's a lot of question marks. I mean, I, I know politically what he was trying to do, but, you know, it's our job and everyone else's job to sort of point out well, that's not quite right is it um pat what, what did you make of the budget the tory have the tories become a, a high tax high spending party all of a sudden well i think the tax changes announced by the chancellor represent a change in thought as well as a change in policy and by that i mean if you go back to the george osborne days uh, the justification for cutting corporation tax at that time was if you cut the rate you stimulate more activity and actually your overall amount of revenue will rise. That was also true of the justification for cutting the 50p rate. This time around, it's been a complete U-turn in the ideology of this, if you like, as well as the policy, because the Chancellor's indicated that by quite a hefty hike in corporation tax, he'll get substantially more revenue. So I think that is in itself an important change on the part of the Conservative Party. Uh, the view that increasing rates, so I, I think it's a big change. Paul, you, you've kind of gone through some of the hidden nasties in the budget there, but it looks like we're going to be looking at quite big spending cuts come the spending review in autumn. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, we, we, when, when we discussed this with the post-budget briefing with the Treasury officials, they were stressing, look, you know, we're going to have really big spending rises. You know, this is not a spending-cutting government at all. Um, and Sunak, you know, he made that clear in, in the budget. He said, you know, we were elected, you know, to, to invest in public services, and that's we're going to keep that promise. So I think Actually, although, yeah, there are some things they need to explain from the budget that some departments, as I say, that look like they might get cut, they need to explain themselves. Overall, I think it's obvious that they are going to be trying to increase spending over the parliament. And as, Ta as Pat just said, I think that's really getting them into a really interesting place because they're now trying to basically move on to Labour's territory on corporation taxes. As Pat says, it's a really significant, big moment that from Rishi Sunak on the radio this morning. It went much further than perhaps anything he said in the budget in terms of politics of it, because he was basically saying that this whole Tory philosophy of the Laffer curve is dead, that, you know, the lower the taxes, the more the take. And, you know, if you if you're abandoning that, yeah, it's going to get some flat from Tory MPs. But at the same time, it does make it difficult for Labour in some ways because, um, you know, he's, he, he's moved on to Labour's territory. But, you know, a smart politician does do that and they try and co-opt another party's sort of approach to things while at the same time keeping all their old values. So, you know, they are the government still at the end of the day. They're not the opposition. And governments try to nick the opposition's best ideas and make it look like, you know, they're being ultra reasonable, they're being centrist, they're being in the middle. Um and I think that that's going to be quite interesting the way it plays out. Of course, the big question is, you know, does he follow through? and Can you hold him to it? But I think, you know, that very idea that tax cuts are, are really not what they're all cracked up to be is going to be very interesting because you know, a lot of Tory members, a lot of Tory MPs uh, do still believe that. And, it, and as Pat said, it's an ideology. Don't forget, one thing that's often 
missed in all the talk, talk about budgets and, and economics is somehow it's always seen as if there are these cast iron rules, that there are these things that just are immutable. And, and idea of cutting taxes and, and it being helpful for economy is been seen as some sort of rule. But actually, no, it's a political choice. And I think Labour's had a real difficulty ever since Thatcher, obviously, when she framed household budgets as being like a national budget, that having the having the language to cope with that has been really hard. But maybe that debate's changing. I don't know. What do you think, Pat? I think that the household uh, budget analogy has been uh, extremely appealing, extremely powerful, and wrong. Uh, you know, it's 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 been used by politicians all around the world, uh, and particularly in the last ten years, I think we've we've learned that that's not the way that countries' finances uh, work. I mean, you take what central banks have done on quantitative easing, for example, um, what that's done to interest rates, and one of the paradoxes which illustrates that is we are we are borrowing very substantial amounts of money at the moment. Uh, the national debt has increased rapidly on the back of that. But the amount that we actually pay in debt interest payments every year is the lowest it's been for decades because of the interest rates. So the household finances analogy, as I say, is very politically powerful, but it's not actually how countries' finances work. And that leads me to wonder, after yesterday, whether things will actually turn out as announced. I'm not accusing the Chancellor of any deceit when I say that, but I just think it's such an uncertain political and economic environment that the assumptions about recovery and so on, which which lead to the dates that were used, uh, are probably pretty questionable, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I think we're itching to get onto the political implications here, but Pat, I just, and we will do yeah. that, but Pat, I just wanted to ask you about something specific first. Yes. Um, you're the shadow city minister. Yes. And Sunak announced some measures to boost yeah. the stock market after London lost its status as Europe's top share trading hub to Amsterdam. Um, do his measures do enough? And how worried should we be about Brexit and financial services? Well, it's interesting that Brexit was barely mentioned in the budget. Uh, and financial services were barely mentioned in the Brexit negotiations. And that's part of the problem here is uh, the government really made a deliberate choice to uh, uh, not make a priority of financial services in those negotiations. And what we've seen in the two months since Brexit kicked in properly at the end of the transition period is uh, share trading going to Amsterdam, uh, assets moving and not so much a big bang, but a slow puncture of business going abroad. So the reviews, there were two reviews published, uh, the Khalifa review on fintech and Lord Hill's review on listings. And they've got a number of recommendations in them to try and boost the city. But we'll, we'll look at all these things. We want the city to be successful. We uh, understand that the financial services sector is hugely important to the UK. It's well beyond London. We've got other centres in uh, Edinburgh, Leeds, Bournemouth and so on. Um, but you have to, you, you can't pretend that these measures uh, necessarily make up for the damage done by Brexit. Uh, they may be designed to say, look over here, don't look at the damage being done by Brexit, but the damage by done by Brexit is ongoing and unless get a better place this is the slow puncture on trade and business and market access will continue. 
When you say a better place there, do you think Labour should be kind of doing more to promote a better Brexit and possibly a, a kind of better deal than we have at the moment? And do you think that will be a policy going to the next election, potentially? I think there's been some misunderstanding of Keir Starmer's position on this in, in recent weeks. You know, I've read stories that there's been some instruction, you can't talk about this and all of that. That's not the case. Uh, he doesn't want to keep rerunning the referendum. Once they accept the result, Brexit has happened, uh, whether we like it or not. And it's happened on a, on a particular basis. It's happened on the basis that not only did we leave the EU, but we left the single market and the customs union as well. That has happened. You know, he, he accepts that, and that was indicated in the vote on the deal uh, just after it, it was agreed. Uh, but that doesn't stop us pointing out the consequences of that, because that, that sequence of events was ultimately the government's choice. And so it is perfectly fair for us to point out the consequences of that, either in the Northern Ireland uh, situation with the, the, the trade there, and there's been a, another squall in the last 24 hours about that, or indeed in the heart of England. I mean, I engaged in a call with black country manufacturing businesses. I represent Wolverhampton, and these businesses are, are in my area. And they're reporting a nightmare of paperwork, cost increases, delays on trying to export goods to Europe in a way that was completely seamless before. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure how that can be changed within the parameters of the current deal. And at the moment, the Tory party is dealing with this like it's constituency casework and writing letters to ministers about it. But actually, that paperwork, those delays are dictated by the agreement that Boris Johnson struck. That's a good point, Pat, actually, because I, I thought I was struck by the fact that actually, although Sunak didn't mention Brexit, Keir Starmer did. And, um, you know, he went out of his way to say some of the things that you were just saying, look, you know, we it's not much help this budget to all those businesses who are currently suffering from the red tape the delays whether it's shellfish or manufacturing or whatever uh, or hauliers you know and I thought that was really interesting that he said that on the floor of the house and it made me think that actually he's going to be a bit more proactive on the whole Brexit stuff um, yeah he, he doesn't want to refight the old war he wants to reassure particularly you know areas like Midlands, you know, look, the, the vote's been done, been and done. It's not there's yeah. going back. But at the same time, the next election, he might say, look, you know, if you want a, a better jobs led Brexit, then we're the party who might actually renegotiate this thing. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's right. And there's another part of this that I was thinking about when this Northern Ireland thing blew up uh, yesterday evening is. We have to be really careful here that these, these issues don't result in just ongoing grievance and bad feeling between the UK and the EU. And, you know, if I was a cynic, I'd say for some people in the Conservative Party, that's the perfect outcome. You, you can continue outside the EU to blame them for all the difficulties, all the paperwork, all the form filling, all the extra costs and so on, and never have to acknowledge that was actually because of the type of Brexit that you chose. And every time this comes up, you can add to the grievance perpetually. Uh, I think Raphael Baer wrote a column about this a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was perceptive. And when uh, you, know, you can see them reaching for that excuse quite a lot. But actually, if we're going to deal with some of these issues, 
like the financial services problems, it is possible within the parameters of the deal that's been agreed to get to more market, market access than we have at the moment, but it's going to require goodwill. And if we have uh, basically a continuation of the British discussion about Europe that we had before Brexit, uh, but just outside it, then it's going to be much more difficult to reach a better accommodation on those issues. So I'm concerned about the goodwill factor here as well as everything else. And do you think, Pat, that maybe come the next election, Labour will be in a, a more confident position, as it seems Starmer was yesterday, to argue to voters, look, we know what your, what your verdict was, but actually we're on your side in terms of making it work. And we're going to do... You know, we maybe even renegotiate the Brexit deal so that you get we get. Well, a better I don't know deal. if you'll go as far as the last thing that you said. Uh, I think he, I think he wants to accept that what's happened has happened. The question will be whether, within those parameters, you can do more for businesses uh, and and for jobs. Uh, and he certainly won't want to use the position of Britain being outside the EU as a convenient tool for grievance against it. He's not that kind of personality for a start, and nor is he a nationalist. So he won't want to. He won't want to do those things. But I'm. I'm not sure that uh, you know, next election is a long way away. I'm not sure he'll want to be talking about renegotiating the deal or anything like that. Well, to get back to the budget, aside from the economics, the budget was also very interesting politically, possibly more interesting politically, as we've kind of been hinting at. Um, Sunak postponed the tax rises to 2023, which has set Tory tongues wagging about a potential snap election that year. And the Chancellor's slick social media output has meanwhile done little to dampen speculation about his leadership ambitions. And as we've kind of been discussing, there are questions for how Labour responds to the new kind of Tory party that Sunak seems to have ushered in. Let's hear a bit of Keir Starmer's response yesterday. Behind the spin, the videos and the photo ops, we all know the Chancellor doesn't believe in an active and enterprising government. We know, we know he's itching to get back to his free market principles and to pull away support as quickly as he can. One day these restrictions will end. One day we'll all be able to take our masks off, and so will the Chancellor. And then you'll see who he really is. Uh, Paul, Keir Starmer there in that clip said Sunak will kind of one day reveal himself to be a classic Tory, he'll take the mask off. Um, but is he right? And, and how difficult does the next election start looking for Labour in light of this budget? Well, I think that's, that is one of the problems. If he's getting that wrong, if Sunak doesn't revert to type, if he's not the same old Tory, if he's not a traditional low-tax Tory, then that's difficult, I think, for Labour. Um, it's not impossible, obviously, to fight against. Um, Pat might tell us what the strategy some of them early one thoughts are. But if you've got, a, a, it's for my mind, it looks like they're trying to project themselves as a pro-growth, sensible, middle-of-the-road party, um, and that actually a pro-growth, pro-spending party. Now, that what's, what's, there's not much difference between that and Labour's philosophy of pro-growth, pro-spending. I mean, Keir Starmer himself in his recent speech stressed really strongly, look, we've got to get back to talking about growth, getting away from tax, talking about tax all the time. Um, but if, if Sunak's on that territory as well, then, you know, it's, it is politically interesting. The difficulty, I think, for Sunak is that look at his, the figures yesterday about projected growth. If you're a pro-growth party, why you got such anemic growth rates forecast 
for the end of this parliament. You know, 1.7, 1.6, 1.7. In the last year's the forecast, that, that's paltry. Um, he talked a bit about productivity yesterday, as if giving everyone a management consultant training would somehow solve it. You know, there's loads of big issues that are unresolved, but I, I do think politically. Um, it's going to be trickier for Labour if he doesn't live up to that stereotype. You know, it's, it's, it'd be perfect for Labour if he did. You know, you'd have the, you go back to a schools and hospitals election like you had in 97 or, or even, dare I say, in 2017. You know, that became a schools and hospitals election. Um, and, you know, look what happened to Theresa May and look what happened certainly to John Major. But if, if for some reason Johnson and Sunak can really invest in hospitals and schools, and live up to their word, then it's obviously more difficult for an opposition. Yeah, Pat, I just just wanted to get your thoughts on that, really. How, how does Labour fight this Tory party, assuming Rishi Sunak keeps them along, the, and Johnson keep them along this line? Are you going to try and out-tax and spend them? How do you do it? Well, the first thing is you've got to fight the Tory party that's in front of you, not the Tory party you want to fight. Um, and I think that... Um, you know, the COVID has changed the the boundaries of public spending and borrowing and so on in a way that no one uh, expected. And that's one reason why we've also been talking more about waste in recent months on things like the, the PPE contracts and, and some of that. Um, there's nothing left wing about being irresponsible with public finances or with, with people's money. Uh, so that is a theme that we have uh, picked up. Another thing from our point of view is, you know, my view's always been that any serious party of government has to be as uh, keen on wealth creation as it is on wealth distribution. And I think in voters' minds, there's never been much doubt that Labour's heart is in better public services, in more money for the NHS, more money for schools and so on. Uh, but that's not enough because the voters look at you and if they think, yeah, well, we know you you guys have got a good heart, but we don't really know if you know how the world works. Uh, and that ultimately is a losing proposition, as we found over and over again. Uh, so both in its, on its own merits uh, uh, and in terms of our the story that we tell the country, I think we need a strong story on wealth creation and growth. And what you need to do is to bring together an economic story around the future with that traditional concern for public services. So I see very much wealth creation and fair wealth distribution as going hand in hand. And if you look at the speech Keir Starmer made to the virtual Labour Party conference, everything's a Zoom speech these days, but the speech he made about six months ago, he talked about Labour's big moments of victory in 1945, 64 and 97, and how they had all focused on a big appealing plan for the future. In fact, you could say New Britain was always the winning, the winning platform, really. Um, so uh, I think that's where he wants to get to, is with a big appealing plan for the future. And when he says he wants a reset with business, he absolutely means it, because I think he understands this thing about uh, wealth creation and, and wealth distribution very keenly. And Pat, how do you go about it, though? I mean, you've got obviously a perception problem, as you say, in the minds of the voters. Is it is it going to be solved by policies or is it going to be an overall feel of that they, they can trust you if you keep talking about no, it's business? Got to, I mean, it's got to be what, content. 
Yeah, I'm pretty cynical, not cynical, skeptical about, you know, people talk about this prawn cocktail offensive stuff. I don't think that's enough. You can have as many meetings as you want with people, but if your content isn't right, they're going to want to know what they're buying. Yeah. And or what you're selling. And so uh, certainly there's an amount you can do by by showing that you're available and if you want a dialogue and so on, and that's that gets you to first base. But ultimately, uh, this is done by content and policy. So I, my own view is there needs to be uh, a big recasting of how we think about business, wealth creation, and what we put in place to support it, because only then does it become real. And if I go back to my early political upbringing, if you like, Paul, uh, on the New Labour um, side of things, one of the mistakes made about analysing that period is people think it was all slick PR and Peter Manderson and Alistair Campbell and so on, and they were very good at that, but it was very much content. I mean, I was there uh, right throughout that period, and I saw the effort that went into revising every single policy area to make it bomb-proof. And it was, yes, it was a, a project that maybe had good PR, but it was not a PR project. It was a project of fundamental political change. And, you know, Ard spoke about the next election and it being an uphill struggle. So it was an uphill struggle from the beginning, given the results of the last one. I mean, we we had the worst election results since 1935. So if that doesn't spur you to a fundamental rethink, I'm not sure what would. Just on two things there, the, the, the fact that you need bomb-proof policy and that you need a fundamental rethink. It seemed like you were trying to have a fundamental rethink with opposing corporation tax cuts, but then the policy didn't turn out to be quite bomb-proof as it generated a lot of opposition within the party. And now I'm not quite clear on where Labour are on 2023. For, for that no, the argument was about timing. Um, what we said, and it was a view that was shared by the OECD, the IMF, many others, including some Tories, actually, uh, was that trying to impose tax increases now before a recovery has even started. We were still in lockdown. And trying to impose them now or, or in this tax year about to start at the end of the month um, would have been self-defeating and damaging to the prospects of uh, recovery. And that's the point that we made in the run-up to the budget. And I never expected the Chancellor to do that. I think some of the stuff that gets floated, what I've, more seems to get floated these days than, than perhaps in the past about the budget might have this and might have that. I was always pretty doubtful that he would go for tax rises immediately. So that's what that argument was about. Fair enough. And, and you mentioned, Pat, actually, you know, the idea, you're right, in, in opposition and certainly New Labour would go through line by line. And Alistair Darling, I remember rightly, I think it was mainly his job, I think the Shadow Chief Secretary, wasn't it, to uh, to make sure that everything was fully costed, everything worked. But uh, obviously, Labour, New Labour had some really reassuring things for, for business, like, for example, that, you know, Independent Bank of England, which is almost a stroke of genius overnight, it's an amazing policy that reshaped the way people think about Labour. Um, do you need something that big, do you think, ahead of the next election? Well... You know, we've got some time. We're, you know, we're closer to the last one than the next one in in, in terms of time scale. Um, you know, but I would say it's got to be it's got to be content uh, uh, led. It's got to be real, uh, or or people people will see through 
what you're doing. And that, that's why I think um, uh, the offer that's made at the next election has to be has to be informed by that and by where we are. Apart from anything else, COVID necessitates this. I think anybody turning up at the next election with a pre-COVID manifesto is, it'd be like turning up to D-Day on a horse. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just... It just, it would be, you, you have to, everybody has to absorb and understand. And indeed, there's a responsibility on politicians to to really try and study and understand the changes brought about by COVID. Uh, we may, may not have time for them today, but I'm thinking about all this working at home by Zoom. What does that mean for how people are hired? What does it mean for city centres? What does all this online learning mean for education? Uh, the different way that, healthcare will be delivered. These are huge, huge questions. And you can't just reprint what you did what you did before. COVID will have changed things in big fundamental ways. Yeah. And I think I was thinking maybe, I mean it's not your brief, but maybe the idea of a national care service to match a national health service could get revived given that what's happened with care homes is just exposed that, you know, you've got this really fragmented system. Um, but you're right on on um, reassuring the voters on on the economy. I think maybe things like, are you looking at ways to help the self-employed? I mean, Keir's been pushing that really hard, the excluded. But I mean, on the face of it, we, we haven't seen any Labour policies that, are, that specifically help the self-employed. I know Tom Watson used to go on about this a lot, um, but we didn't really, just as he went on about the fourth industrial revolution. I mean, we didn't, uh, they're, they're valid issues. And I know Keir Starmer's really in, in, interested in both of those. But do you, do you think by the time of the next election, you're going to have to have something incredible for the self-employed? I mean, they're, they're the kind of voters who really you should be voting Labour because... You know, you need them to win not just marginal seats, but uh, across England, if you can't rely on Scotland. I, I was struck at the last election by one woman who was interviewed, I think, in um, in Burnley in her hairdressers. And she ran her hairdressers and she said, I'm not voting for Labour. And then she was asked why. She said, they're not for people like me anymore. And she was she, a small businesswoman, yeah. a traditional Labour voter who happened to set up a business. How do you get them back? Well, look, that is that is the exam question for us. And, you know, like every candidate, I stood on plenty of doorsteps uh, listening to voters who said, I used to be Labour, but not this time. And they told me pretty candidly why. Uh, and I think we all know the, the main reasons for that. Um, so, you know, we, we do need a big effort to get them back. I mean, on the self-employed, you're absolutely right. There's no reason why many self-employed people wouldn't wouldn't vote Labour. But what you've got to do is show that you care about the effort that goes into that, to, to building up a small business or acting as a sole trader um, and, and have a, a policy programme that shows that you support it and a story of the country that shows that you support it. I do go back to wealth creation and wealth distribution quite a lot because I think that, I think that captures it. Uh, people want a successful economy. They want prosperity both nationally and for themselves, but they also want to live in a society with what I would call a, a good public square, a, a proper health service, a well-funded schools, uh, you know, a safety net there for you if you if you you know if you have a problem and you 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 fall in hard times in some ways, and you need you need both of those. People haven't doubted that we've wanted to combine one of those in the past. But they do doubt that we've been adequately in favour of both of them. 
and we have to fix that. The kind of third plank, we've talked about the COVID support measures and the tax rises, the kind of third plank of the budget was uh, the government's levelling up agenda. Yes. And uh, Rishi Sunak's facing accusations of um, potential uh, pork barrel politics with some of these funds that he's launched, such as the Towns Fund, uh, where 40 of the 45 latest grants have gone to Tory seats, the levelling up fund where his well-off constituency is getting is being prioritised for cash there. But aside from that and, and the, those accusations, because obviously you can criticise him for that, is it difficult for Labour? How does Labour deal with money flowing into these Tory seats? You, you don't want to look like you're opposing investment in these areas at the end of the day. No, look, my constituency, my, my city, Wolverhampton, uh, we put together a Towns Fund bid. We put together a bid for £50 million. We had 25 allocated um, so a lot of the projects we were going to fund from it won't be able to do uh, from that. I welcome I welcome every pound I can get for the city I represent. That's the basic duty of any constituency MP. But I also put it in some context. That £25 million is about a tenth of what the city's lost uh, in its uh, annual budgets uh, since the Conservative Party came into power. So it's also incumbent on me to point that out. And I do think this the smell of pork barrel is very strong from all this. Um, 41 of the 45 areas with Conservative MPs. We're going to have probably a similar process with this levelling up fund. Um, I just wonder if it's better to allocate money genuinely on the basis of need than this. If a, you know, a strategy between ministers and backbenchers uh, to produce these press releases. Um, but on levelling up more widely... You know, my view is, looking at Boris Johnson's record, I think he's a man who likes the, the Grand Projet, you know, the new bridge, whether it's built or not, the new tunnel, uh, all of these things. And I think there'll be a lot of that. But my experience representing somewhere like Wolverhampton Southeast is if you're serious about this, it has to revolve around people and their life chances and their opportunities too. And I don't hear enough of that from... The Conservative Party. So if you ask me what's the difference between Labour levelling up and Conservative levelling up, that would be my answer. Maybe it's, you know, that you'd expect me to say this, but if I was starting on this, I would look at life chances in the early years. I would look at the performance of schools. I would look at the job chances of people aged 16 to 20, leaving education and going into what is now a very difficult labour market. Unemployment, youth unemployment in my constituency has gone up by over 500 in the last year alone. In Wolverhampton, unemployment as a whole has gone up 70% in the last year. That's a bit, again, a bit of context for these towns fund things. If we're serious about levelling up, and we should be, what we have to do is equip the people who live in these towns and regions to succeed in the labour markets of today and tomorrow. And you can't do all that just with a new bridge or a new railway station, welcome as some of those physical infrastructure projects are. Uh, yeah, Paul, just wanted to ask you, um, Rishi Sunak's made headlines again this week for his social media, slick, big budget social media output. Um, do you think it's still working for him? How do you think it goes down with voters and where does it stop? Well, to be honest, I mean, it is... It is in the Westminster bubble and on the Twitterati, obviously people think it's really funny and, you know, isn't it ridiculous? I, I actually 
tend to think, you know, in communications, the more you get yourself across in every area, the better. And, you know, I, I kind of think if we're all talking about it, then Sunak's hope will be that, you know, the punters will start noticing him. Um, I mean, they don't notice him as much as he thinks he does because he, he was in that press conference yesterday and he said, oh, people have seen me talking on the telly about this. Well, they might not actually have seen you talking on the telly about it. You hope they have. Um, I think he's still got massive popularity rate, net ratings, though, more than any other leading politician. And obviously part of that is because he's giving out fivers on the street corner every five minutes. But I mean, you know, I think his danger is it, it comes across as maybe just too self-obsessed if you if he if it, i don't i'm not interested in what you what agonies you went through rishi sunak as you drew up the budget spare me your agony you know as you go back to your millionaire pound house and your air life i mean i don't really care about that but if you can be genuine and get across as you know what you're trying to do for the country then i think then that's fine on instagram or whatever um the interesting thing though again don't forget he doesn't in it was so telling. It goes back to the whole theme we're talking about. Is he trying to reposition the Tories on the centre ground? And is he trying to detoxify the Tory brand? Because the word conservative, the word Tory, wasn't on any of those signature tweets of his. It was Rishi Sunak, not conservative. And I think that's the trick that Ken Livingston pulled off in London when he was an independent. It's a trick that Tony pulled off uh, in some ways. Um, you know, if you can somehow reposition yourself as a politician uh, as being um, almost non-political then I think that's what he's trying to get at and yeah I think his team will be quite pleased at all the chat about it despite everything you know despite all the jibes. Yeah, should, should we expect similar uh, six minute um, soft focus videos of Annalise Dodds or Keir Starmer soon Pat? <laughs> I don't know um, every politician tries to tries to market themselves um i mean i don't like to like to get personal about people if that's if that's what he wants to do um it's up to him really you know whether anyone else does i don't know fair enough fair you enough. know what you know what is interesting and is a healthy change is that i noticed looking back at some old pictures of budgets um when they used to hold up the the red box outside number 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 11 they often had their bloody wife next to them I mean, what was the point of that? You had Norman Lamont holding up the red box with his wife at his side. And you think, seriously? I think Ken Clark's wife had to endure that as well. And thank God that has gone out. I mean, you know, what was the point of that? And well, at least Mrs. Yeah. Sunak or Mrs. Murphy doesn't do that. So, you know. Yeah. Well, talking of budget trivia, it's time for the quiz. Right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Pat, you clearly weren't warned. No, I wasn't. <laughs> It's very if it, quick. If it's got any right. Celtic questions, it'll be all right. But it doesn't yeah. have Celtic questions. There's, there's now a cold sweat running down my back cards, you know, before <laughs> we start the quiz. Uh, it's very quick. It'll only take, it's only a couple of questions. Uh, just shout out the answer if you know it. It's all budget related this week for obvious reasons. Um, so according to the IFS, this was the biggest tax raising budget since which former Chancellor's budget? Roy Jenkins. No. Oh, I thought it was Roy Jenkins. Uh, oh, God. Oh, Denny Seeley. No. No. So you've actually got the... This is terrible. This is the answer to question two, which you've both given me. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's How was the not, answer wrong? It's Norman Lamont, who, who was the last oh, chance to put... 1993. That's it. Yeah, who yeah, put yeah. up taxes this much in yeah. one budget. And then the next question was... 
the tax burden's at its highest level. Right, here we go. Chancellor. Okay. Ah, right. Fair yes. enough. Roy Jenkins. Okay, so there's only one more question, which is going to be the, you know, winner takes all. Um, so in the budget, Sunak announced that duty taxes on alcohol will be frozen again. But when is the earliest changes to alcohol and tobacco duties can come into effect after the budget? E.g., is it a week later or when? Is it midnight that night? I don't know. Midnight of the finance bill. I don't know. I think it's the, the same day. I've got 6 p.m. in my mind. Yeah, well done, Pat. That's bang on. 6 p.m. the same good. day. Well done, uh, Pat. You've won the quiz. 1-0. Good. Well, you know, what a relief. <laughs> but better than Celtic have managed in a lot of games this season. It is, it is this season, yeah. <laughs> Um, right unfortunately that's all we have time for this week thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to commons people on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in westminster by subscribing to the war zone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone we'll just leave you with an awkward meeting between rishi sunak and a couple of schoolboys, which went viral this week but I'm an I'm a enormous Coca-Cola fan. Uh, Coca, yes, I won't drink it. No Diet Coke, no Coke Zero, <laughs> never any Pepsi. Um, and actually, my favourite drink is, is not even Coke. It's called Mexican Coke. Because um, you get it, it's this special Coke, uh, which is the only place in the world where Coke is made with uh, cane sugar rather than high fructose corn syrup mm. for the oh. people that are really interested in this kind of thing. <laughs> so if anyone's travelling in Mexico or... Uh, this Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.